Welcome to Inspiring Entrepreneurs Montreal, our 15th season, part two, showcasing stories from outstanding business people presented by BDO Canada. My name is Dan Delmar, along with Mike Newton of BDO. Mike, it's a new year, time for a year of new stories. Great to be back, Dan. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, late in January in Montreal, so uh, it's always a little bit of a, uh, a test of people's psyche. But uh, yes, it's, it's great to be back and uh, kick off 2024. Well, it's a great time to talk about coffee, right? I think, uh, you know, the mood right now, we could probably use a little pickup. So Union Coffee is on the program today. Stefan Curry, it's a third-generation business, uh, fourth if you count the original founders of Union Coffee, but a business that's been in the in the wholesale background of Montreal for a very long time to the point where, you know, I've been in offices and people say, oh, I, we've got the Union Coffee, right? And so there's a lot of brand equity in that for a wholesaler um, to, to supply Montrealers with good quality coffee around offices around the city. Most definitely. It dates back to 1910 when it was first started. And uh, uh, Stefan and his family, uh, you know, go back. His, his grandfather goes back even as an employee in the early stages before the family actually acquired it. So, yeah, I think it's a it's a great story. It's a great success in Montreal. Uh, and, uh, you know, maybe this is our attempt in the deep winter of uh, deep, dark recesses of winter. Uh, I'm going to throw out Cold Brew, which is a new division that they created. So maybe not so much for January, but maybe it's something to look forward to once May rolls around. So, Indeed, they're going to talk about cold brew. We're going to talk about sort of espresso snobbery. Uh, they um, they pioneered making espresso at home uh, with, a, with a machine they imported in the 70s. So we'll talk about that on the podcast as well. Lots to get to, including ESG, environmental social governance, uh, as it applies to the coffee industry. Uh, that with our video expert later in the program. But first, as usual, news and notes. And Mike, this story we've been waiting on for a few months now. But I did want to talk about the future of office space in Montreal, and especially WeWork. A while ago, they they filed for bankruptcy in the States. This story always confused me, because when you talk about what's going on in real estate downtown, uh, in every downtown, really, across Canada and the U.S., offices are shrinking. Uh, shared office concepts are becoming more popular. So why isn't WeWork successful? Well, I think there's a couple of elements at play here. One of them is the financial side. There's a very high debt uh, component to uh, WeWork, and as interest rates can continued to creep up, it made that much more uh, put that much more pressure on operating cash flow. Uh, I mean, you're talking about an, a company here at one point that was valued at close to forty seven billion dollars. I mean, this is this is a this is a major swing. Uh, they're now in the process of trying to restructure something like 70 of their leases. Uh, they're under Chapter 11 in the U.S., which is they they get to continue to operate, but under uh, you know under supervision. Um, how many of their offices are going to stay open? I don't know. Uh, you know, it, it, the second part of this, and and I think it's an interesting one, which is your discussion of well, weren't we going to remote work? Weren't we trying to reduce our footprint in in office space? And and I think what it does is it speaks very loudly to the experience of having to go to an office. 
Um, you know, if you're going to go to an office as an employee, you want an experience. And as much as the WeWork environment created space and created flexibility, it wasn't creating necessarily a sense of teamwork and 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 cohesion. Um, so if you're you know if you're asking your people to come in Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursdays, for example, uh, as a lot of places have started to, um, they want to come into an environment that is a team space. They want to come into something that is still there. So we're getting this very strong feeling that I, most of the time I want to work at home, but when I want to come in, you better make it work worthwhile. And the the office sharing space is not creating that worthwhile sense. For a while, it was it was this really kind of cool, hip environment where we all kind of meshed together and you borrowed space and you had one coffee machine for 17 different offices and it was cool. You know, it was it was the thing to do. That's been replaced by, you want me to come to the office? You better make an experience for me. Yeah, indeed. I mean, now that people are working hybrid, uh, are they not willing to work in those kinds of environments as well and perhaps maximize their time uh, with their core teams in their office spaces. When I went, I visited a WeWork um, maybe many years ago, we were looking for a satellite office and uh, I spent maybe half a day there and I had to say there was a lot of noise and like a lot of action, people coming in and out. I saw a lot of corporate satellite offices where that were either empty completely or that there was just kind of like one social media person sitting in there. So I'm not so sure how serious a place of business it is. I wonder what the next iteration of the model will be and whether or not it'll bring a little bit more privacy, a little bit more seriousness to the table. Yeah, I mean, uh, look, I mean, the, the the whole, and this is going to be, I think, a battle that we're going to be facing in, in office space for a long time is, you know, people don't want to come in on a regular basis. I mean, you know, good or bad, that that that's the situation at this point. The problem is, is how do you rent office space? If you've got 100 employees, you're not going to rent office space for 100 people. But you're also not going to go to WeWork and rent space for four people. So, you know, somewhere in that exercise, you have to have enough for people to come in and 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 feel this sense of belonging. Like you said, if you're if you're going to make me come to the office, I want to feel something. And and you just you, it's hard to do in an environment that is uh, that is really not considered home. But I got to tell you, Dan, I, I'm not sure how we're going to solve this. I, there's so many schools of thought right now. Uh, it's still uh, the evolution of, of where this goes in the next five years is going to be uh, be very interesting. Right now, January, February, it's a really time, a tough time traditionally for the restaurant industry. Let's spend some time talking about them because they're facing a number of challenges. Um, uh, cost mounting, of course, skyrocketing prices in Canada. Those who took out some loans are having some trouble repaying them as a result. So... Um, what are some of the keys, I think, Mike, to uh, to modernizing to to for restaurants to to adapt to this very chaotic time? It's going to be a challenge. I mean, uh, people have complained that the prices in restaurants continue to go up. Unfortunately, what they're not seeing is the costs behind trying to run those restaurants has gone up even more than the prices have gone up. We're going to continue to see. I mean, we're probably sitting in about on about fifty percent of the restaurants in in Canada who are just struggling right now. I mean, the cost of, of space, the cost of staff and people, the inability to maintain a uh, long-time committed uh, a group of workers. I mean, this is going to be really, really challenging going forward. And, you know, we throw in that the whole uh, conversation of uh, of tips and, uh, and, and people, you know, 
from home or their their uh, Uber Eats or whatever. And this is going to continue to be a challenge for the restaurant industry, which is unfortunate because I think you know when you consider certainly from a restaurant perspective, Montreal is is really that hub. But it's going to be a challenge for everybody to to continue to move forward. I mean, consumers are tapped out right now. Uh, I mean, not only is the economy not great, but we're post uh, holiday season where everybody's uh, consumer debt is gone through the roof. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm not sure I've got the solution to this one, Dan. I think we're going to continue to, uh, you know, to 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 try and uh, to try and sort through this. And you know, we've picked two industries in our topics today: office space and restaurants, which, uh, you know, we took for granted for a long time. We can no longer take them for granted. I want to maybe have a couple of optimistic notes for the restaurant industry because it's such a, an important part of, of Montreal. Uh, we ended the, the the first half of the season uh, at the end of the year with Joe Beef, and I think they did something very, very interesting. And I think they saw during the early days of the pandemic some of the issues uh, that they were having, and they went to retail, and they really doubled down on retail, spices, sauces, even frozen meals somewhat controversially, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's working. It seems to be working and uh, and certainly helping their brand survive. So pivoting um, to at-home consumer could be a big part of the equation. I think that, you know, the, the evolution of the business model is going to have to continue to, uh, you know, where we talked about in an earlier session about, uh, you know, the fact that we are ultimately going to see in the near future, um, you know, you're going to make a reservation. There's going to be a charge for, to maintain that reservation. Uh, you've seen business models. We had a guest on who talked about they're changing business models where they're seating, you know, 14 or, or tables and that's it. Like, boom, you know, you're going to, you're going to book. I think to survive, we're going to need to see an evolution of the business model. And, and, you know, whether you can blame that on COVID, whether you can blame it in the spinoff of COVID, uh, Certainly, it's going to take some rejuvenation in thought process and the traditional old, you know, uh, sh- throw up the shutters and uh, and and throw a shingle out and, and start a restaurant is is not is not going to be the way to go if you're if you're going to survive long term. Let's also look at the a really worst case scenario if a restaurant is facing bankruptcy protection, even if it's a restaurant, hopefully that's that has some brand equity that's been around for a while. I'm thinking of Juliette et Chocolat. We had Juliette Brun on the program uh, maybe one or two seasons ago. Same thing. She ran into some issues there. But however, there is a silver lining because she managed to find some investment, save the business, and now they're they're on a bit of a rebound. So just because operationally things might be up against a brick wall, there's still value there in in your restaurant, in your business, in your legacy, and maybe it's just a question of finding the right partner. Look, look at the look at the investment that was made in bringing back Moishes and you know re, re not rebranding Gibby's, but giving it a you know a, a kind of a new life and in, in terms of what's there. You're talking about institutions that for a long time and certainly from a Moishes we thought we might never see again. There is a lot of hope left in the restaurant industry. So I'm not trying to you know the the chicken little sky is falling, but I think it means that people need to not just take for granted that an old business model is going to work. And I think as a lot of things have happened in the last few years. I think all of us are rethinking our businesses. And I think if you're going to change the business model and you're going to grow and you're going to do, there is always going to be space. Okay, let's get into coffee now with Stefan Curry, president of Union Coffee, third generation business. Uh, they deliver coffee to all around Montreal and also provide people with machines and, and all the gear that's required to make top of the line coffee. So Stefan, welcome to CJAD. Thank you. Nice to be here. A really recognizable brand. Uh, tell us first, what is Union Coffee? Union Coffee 
is a coffee roaster and espresso machine importer. Uh, we've been roasting coffee since 1967. Uh, the company has existed since 1910, but uh, we started roasting in 1967. Um, we specialize in gourmet coffees, uh, original traditional Italian roasts, third wave coffees, fair trade organic coffees, um, for the home, for businesses, for restaurants. Uh, we do online sales. Then we have our wonderful new uh, store on Jean Talon that we just renovated, um, where we specialize in domestic machines so people could come in and uh, try all kinds of machines and great coffee for their house. So you started with the 1910 walking down memory lane. I'm going to continue it with you. Um, I find this very interesting. And the information for anybody who wants, it's on the website. So it was started in 1910 in Bon Secours Market, but not by the family. No, not by the family. There was a Portuguese gentleman, uh, Mr. Dalban, who uh, founded the company. And at the time, with all the immigrants coming to Montreal, uh, they were doing spices and teas and coffee, a little bit of coffee, but a lot of spices and a lot of teas. And they were um, in the Bon Secours market. And my grandfather actually started working for Union Coffee in uh, 1927 at the age of... Uh, 10 years old or 11 years old at the time. And that's how it actually, that's how he got involved. So he would do deliveries and whatnot. And uh, the years went by and Union Coffee moved from the Bon Secours Market to St. Dennis Street, uh, to St. Catherine Street uh, with a couple of locations. And in uh, 1963, the original owner of Union Coffee was sick and was not doing well. So my grandfather bought the business. Um, so it's been in our family since 1963. In 1967, to give you a brief history, uh, my dad, Eric Khoury, bought the first roaster and uh, opened up the location uh, where we currently are on Jean Talon for the retail sales. Um, so we, we were on Jean Talon and we still are for, in 1967. And then in uh, 19, no, no, sorry, not 19, it's goes, the years go by fast, but in 2013, um, we bought a whole new modern facility in Ville Saint Laurent where we moved our offices and uh, storage and commercial roasting and do our distribution from there where we currently are. And then we still have our uh, store on Jean Talon. As I was reading through, I got a good chuckle on the fact that your grandfather was 11 or 12 years old, thinking that might not pass today's regulations in the, in, in the world we're used to. Uh, somewhere around that 35, 36 years, he stayed on as an employee, I guess, and then finally bought out. And uh, unfortunately, he passed not too long after buying it out, seven or eight years, I guess, right? And uh, your, Correct. Your, your grandmother and your father officially took over at that that time. Um had he been sick? Was this something that the family had prepared for, or was this very sudden and kind of, uh, you know? He oh, it was very sudden. He was a diabetic, and they had they amputated his leg, and then he got infection and whatnot, and unfortunately, he passed away in 1972. So I haven't had – I never met him. Uh, I'm born in 73, so um, I never met him, but uh, he, was, uh, he was a great gentleman and uh, a pioneer in the industry in Montreal. How did the family react? I mean, we, we go through these scenarios in family businesses many, many times where, you know, the sudden death of, of a founder or, you know, the patriarch or the first level owner, and uh, it throws family into the business maybe or not maybe significantly deeper than they may have been involved before. 
Um, how active was your dad before your grandfather passed and, and how easy or how not so simple was the transition? My father was active in the business. Um, the transition was fairly easy because my, I, my father and my grandmother were both involved in the, in the business. So it was a family business. And I'm sure my father would have done things differently prior or maybe after. Um, but the, the transition was fairly easy. Okay. At the time, it was a small business. So, I mean, uh, they had one little store on uh, St. Catherine Street. And they, um, they, it wasn't very big. It was once we bought the roaster, once he bought the roaster and then started building up the business on Jean Talon that um, things started to, uh, to take off from there. Stefan Curry joins us from Union Coffee, and you see Union in a lot of businesses, workplaces around the city, and people are uh, are very prideful of it. That you've 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 had this reputation for being, I guess, for lack of a better term, coffee snobs. Are you guys uh, the, the wholesale coffee snobs of Montreal? Not at all. That's the last thing we want to be. Is we <laughs> um, we just want to offer a good quality, consistent coffee, and whether you like dark roast, light roast, mid roast. Turkish coffee, uh, espresso, filter drip, pour over. We just want you to have a great cup of coffee every morning. And we want people to enjoy our coffee. So uh, it's the love of coffee and the love of making people happy that drives us. I meant that as a compliment, just for the record. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, uh, it's important that uh, we love what we do. We love our business. We love our customers. And it's... Um, it's uh, it's about bringing joy to people. Talk to us a little bit about setting up a manufacturing facility or a roasting business, right? I mean, you're getting out of the traditional storefront retail approach, and now you're getting into a very, very different business model. Time, money, effort. What prompted it? Uh, you know, what a little bit of a little bit of insight, I guess, into the the initial business model. We got to a point where we were on Jean Talon, where we we owned the building there. We occupied three floors. We had uh, about 3,500 3, square feet on each floor. And we just got to a point where we outgrew uh, that building. We were doing wholesale, retail, commercial repairs, domestic repairs. And uh, we had to store a lot of coffee in outside storage facilities. Um, we were being robbed. We were there were fires in these facilities, so we figured let's put everything under one roof for the wholesale commercial side, and let's separate and open up a nice retail store on Jean Talon. And essentially, we operate two businesses because they're completely different. The retail tends to daily coffee needs for everyday uh, person. And then the wholesale is a whole different beast where you have to have the equipment, the roaster, the processing, the packaging needs. So it's it's completely two different animals. Uh, setting up the wholesale end of it uh, took us about eight months to set up the roaster and find our sweet spots on the roasting machine, uh, get the packaging machine and all the, the whole setup. So it's quite... Um, a, it's you have to be very detailed and you ha you can't make any mistakes especially with the coffee and you can't really shut down your business for 9 months and say guys we're moving and uh, come back in 9 months so we had to stay open and go with the flow and take the punches and as they went but we did it it was uh, it was it was fun actually Stefan what's the what's the secret to a perfect cup of espresso the grind 
the coffee. Um, coffee cannot be too fresh. So you have to have the right grind, the right machine, the right temperature. Those are the three factors. There's a lot of talk about having coffee that's roasted today and being consumed tomorrow. Um, I'll put that myth to rest. It's not the greatest. Coffee has to rest. Coffee has to age. Whether it's a week to 10 days, the gases have to come out, and it really has to form its flavor and its, uh, and its components. So it's important to have fresh, yes, but a rested coffee, a good grind, and a, a good machine always helps. So grind and let it sit a week or so? No, let the beans sit. Once it's ground, you have to drink it within four or five days for its optimal flavor. But once the coffee is roasted, it has to sit. It has to, the gases have to come out. It has to age. It has to develop its flavor and its its characteristics. So it's always important to let it uh, age uh, four, five, six, seven days, and then it's then you can go for it. Like a fine wine, Dan. Indeed. Absolutely. Curry joins us from Union Coffees. Stefan, let's talk about the two aspects to your business now, the two divisions. Can you break it down for us? What are these these two sides of Union Coffee? Uh, side number one, which uh, is a major chunk of our business, is the wholesale division. So that is servicing restaurants, cafes, hotels, and offices, custom blending for people, um, and um, daily deliveries, whatnot, to the areas uh, in Montreal. And then the second division we have is our retail division. So that is dealing with uh, anybody who wants to walk into our store in on Jean Talon or in Ville Saint Laurent and buy coffee for their house or for their family members. And then also the equipment for uh, home equipment, as in espresso machines, pour overs, uh, uh, stovetop espresso machines, and uh, different articles for the house. So. I don't know, 25, 30 years ago, maybe more, you came in, your brother came in, eventually your cousin came in, you've set up these two divisions. We all know how uh, challenging it can be to assign tasks and who's going to do what. Uh, how did you guys work that through as a family and and who took what and who became accountable? And of course, it was smooth and there was no problems, I'm sure. When I started uh, full-time, I'll call it, I was about 20, 21, I was asked, uh, still in school and working and then became a little bit less school, uh, which I finished slowly, but uh, but it was mostly focused on work. Uh, we had our Jean Talon location. So everything we did was in one building. So it was very, very easy. I mean, you can do take 10 steps, do wholesale, take another 20 steps and you were in our retail store. So it was it was good. It was practical and everyone was in the same building. When I was there originally uh, my father was there so I worked with my dad and um, we had a good relationship but it, w- it was tough a few years later I have a younger brother James who got involved with us and James is a great salesman and uh, a great people's person so he kind of leaned towards doing sales and being on the road and talking to people and development and he found his niche like that and I'll come back to this little segment in a second. Um, a few years after that, uh, my cousin Andrew uh, joined the business as well. And Andrew sort of took over the retail side of the business, uh, dealing with customers at Jean Talon and customer service on that end. When we moved our business or separated our business, so we opened up our factory in Ville Saint Laurent, I continued lo- looking after operations, uh, production management, purchases, my brother, who was already into sales, stayed in sales and today solely focuses on 
business development and sales. Uh, and then Andrew remained back and he's at Jean Talon looking after customer service there. It's, it's, it's been a challenge. Um, everybody has different ideas, uh, different uh, ways of doing things. So as, um, as we move forward, it's about uh, talking, meeting, getting together, uh, brainstorming, and letting people uh, do what they have to do that they feel is best to, to operate within their own uh, segment of the business. I'll tell you, it's third generation maintaining a success is you're in the, you know, you, you're, you're against the odds. I mean, you're under double digits in terms of success rates for third generation. So keep it going and, and remember how to keep talking to each other because I think that's your evolution moving forward. So You know what? Everybody says that and it's, it kind of, it motivates us. It because um, they say third generations use are the ones that uh, don't succeed and mm. and we want to succeed and we that's why we stay based or focused on our roots and what got us here and it keeps us down to earth and um, we try not to to do things above uh, what we can control and what we can do so it's important excellent let's uh, let's switch to sourcing let's uh, I mean obviously. Uh... You know, Canada is not known as a great producer of coffee beans, so you got to source them from somewhere. Uh, give us a little bit of insight into the sourcing, what, uh, you know, the pandemic uh, supply chain problems created, and as well, uh, touch on the on the fair trade side of things. We, the, our traditional sourcing has come from dealing with uh, brokers, coffee brokers uh, in Montreal or in the east or northeast, I would say. So it's Colombians, Brazils, uh, Costa Ricas, uh, Mexicans, and we try to stay with the same type of coffee over the years. Um, consistency is key. Now, like wine or like any other commodity, the environment has created uh, or the climate change has created some changes in the coffee industry. So uh, it's not always as easy as... Uh, as uh, we think it is. That being said, Colombians and uh, the the our main origins that we import are always the same. We get try to get them from the same area, the same co cooperations, um, and um, it's a key for us. In the last couple of years, um, we've started our uh, micro lot division which is slowly taking off. And these are highly specialized coffees that are, we're direct importing them. So we will pick a specific farm in a country and direct import from this farm. So we're dealing directly with the farmers, with the people who operate this farm. And it's allowed us to create relationships with these people and see how they live and see how they go about their daily business, which is uh, not easy. Very similar, we also have um, fair trade organic coffees. So these are coffees where the farmer gets a fair share of, um, of money for his coffee. We do it as an organic as well, so there's no pesticides used, everything is natural. And we try our best to help uh, the farmers because where they are, things are harder there than it is here and um if we could help them out and let them build their uh, areas over there it's uh, it's better for everyone 
So within uh, the micro lots with direct imports or the fair trade organics, uh, we're really trying to help and support the farmers in their area and um, do our part. Are you doing the traveling yourselves within the organization? Yeah. We don't travel too, too much. Uh, I've traveled a couple of times over the years. Uh, we will be going away again next year. But um, it's more today with uh, Zoom calls and meeting them and uh, emails and phone calls. Uh, that's how it's mostly, it's easier to do today. Less, uh, less costly as well. We only have a couple of minutes left, so I just wanted to touch on uh, your thoughts on, well, let's call them the big box, uh, Starbucks and, and everybody else. I mean, you look at um, you look at the pricing, you look at the marketing cost, you look at what's associated with this kind of, you know, blown out, uh, very large scale organization. And you look at the success that you guys have had sticking to quality, sticking to, you know, the basics over the years. Was there ever any interest in, in in evolving what you guys were doing as you watch some of these bigger organizations? Or have you guys always felt that, you know what, this is who we are, this is what we're staying to, and this is, this is not going to change? Well, first of all, I want to thank Starbucks because they introduced everybody to coffee. Going back uh, 20 years or so, 25, 20, 25 years ago, people did not have the knowledge they did or they do today. Um, so these big the Starbucks and all these big companies come in and they introduced coffee-based beverages and people liked it. And then people got into drinking coffee and it evolves and they want something better after and they want something that's different. And on our end, it brought people to us and said, oh, I like this, I tried or I went to Starbucks or I went to Second Cup or whatever it was and they had this type of coffee uh, but I want something that's, uh, I don't know, more full-bodied or darker roast. Or, and it allowed us to build our business thanks to them. A few years back, we toyed with the idea of opening more retail stores, but it wasn't really who we are. We want to be able to control our coffees. And the most important thing is also having a relationship with our customers, uh, whether it's wholesale uh, or even the retail, people come in, we get to know them, they keep on coming back and you build a relationship and you build some form of friendship. And it's really important for us to come in and say, okay, hey, how's it going? Or Mike or Dan, we saw you guys last week and you took so-and-so coffee. How did you like it? Do you want to tweak it? Do you want something else? And that's how we built our business and that's how we maintain our business is through friendships and uh, in French, they say fidelity. Uh, so loyalty. it's a loyalty. And uh, we're loyal people and we try to be loyal with our suppliers. And we're hoping that our customers are also loyal to us, which they are. And let's just do a little bit more for the podcast here uh, with Stefan Curry of Union Coffee. Uh, Stefan, our producer Marjorie was saying we have to bring up the fact that you guys were first to bring in the, is it the Gaggia machine to Canada? Yep, 1976. Yeah. In 1976, my father, Eric, uh, went to Italy and saw this machine, the baby Gaggia. It was after the expo in 67. People were starting to come in and there was, a, there was people were starting to be interested in espresso and cappuccino. Uh, so my father imported the baby Gaggia. It was uh, a good size heavy-duty espresso machine for the house. It was orange and green, so they didn't have a choice of colors, but people would be lined up uh, around the corner to come and buy these machines, and uh, 
we could say we were probably the first company in Montreal or Quebec or Eastern Canada to start selling espresso machines like this. And uh, they were great machines. And actually, some people still have them today. So it's all these mm-hmm. years later, and uh, they still work. And they were really uh, like uh, hot bread coming out of the bakery uh, at 7 in the morning. as They were great machines. Is, is it fair to say, then, that you, you guys st- stay claim to popularizing uh, at-home espresso making in Canada? I don't want to stay claim, but I want to say we were the... Uh, we were uh, one of the first ones to start it. Yeah, yeah I have to say. Very cool. We're we're the OGs, as they say. <laughs> <laughs> and it's it's a it's almost like a meditative process, right? When I see espresso people, and I like it once in a while, but I'm not an espresso guy. But when you see espresso people get into it, I mean, it's almost like a like a meditative ritual. It is a hundred percent. People want their coffee. When you you have your daily coffee, you know what you're looking for. You know the taste. You know um like you know what you're looking for and it's very important to have consistency and uh and a good product going back to the starbucks discussion the proliferation of coffee that's come from the evolution of starbucks and and what it's done um you know it, it's like many of the large chains people will turn around and say well they've destroyed the small business um unless the small business is capable of growing and evolving and doing and and i think for for your business what it's done is it's 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 separated the wheat from the chaff if you will to use an old farming expression um you know you've got your starbucks lovers you've got you know your low end i'm going to make it in the office kind of regular coffee and then you've got a lot of people that probably never would have played in the coffee level that uh, that you guys are at in terms of high end quality, like we said, like a fine wine type of thing. So that evolution uh, has come a long way. I mean, I remember growing up, I'm a few years older than you, you know, mm-hmm. coffee was almost a non-issue when I was growing up, right? You know, your, your mother or your father put a pot of coffee on, or if you're really lucky, you had a small little espresso machine and it was not part of a daily ritual. Uh, I guess you're right. We can thank Starbucks for uh, at least opening up a whole new mindset. Absolutely. The amount of people that Starbucks has touched or reached out or, and not just Starbucks, it's uh, Starbucks was a major factor in the U S but in Canada, there was the second cups and the Tim Hortons and the Dunkin Donuts. If you you want to go for a few years back, but all these places introduced people to coffee and uh, they showed them and, I mean, was it great or was it not great? I'll let everybody decide on their own. But as an introduction, as a coffee beverage, and I'll still say it's a coffee beverage because they put in so much of their milk or their creams or their spices or their whatever they want to put in their drinks, um, it introduced people and it got uh, it started the wheel to turning and it helped it helped roasters like us. It helped smaller roasters. It helped bigger roasters, and it was. It was uh, a new uh, beginning for everyone. Last question for you. Do you do any private label work? We do do private label, yes. Um, Obviously, there has to be some form of volume in it. Right. Um, But there are many restaurants uh, in the Montreal area or many places that we do do private label for. Um, And we've come to a point right now where we pick and choose who we want to do private label for. Um, But we do do it, yes. If possible, I just also want to make a quick mention of uh, cold brew coffee, which is becoming very uh, popular. That falls into the ready ready to drink, right? That's that ready ready to drink uh, in a can. Uh, 
buy it off the shelf, uh, sweetened, unsweetened, uh, regular espresso flavor or not. And that's another beverage that's going to be very popular moving forward um, in Quebec when it's cold in uh, six months of the year, I'll say. Uh, there's a bit of a drop in sales, but in, over the summer months as a cold, refreshing drink with no sugar or not too much sugar, um, it's very popular and it's uh it's it's one of the new trends in the coffee industry that's uh, taking off. So you're, what you're saying is you, for the six months that it's cold, we shouldn't put our cold brew into the microwave to heat it up. That's what you're saying. Absolutely, absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> the Vancouver Union Coffee, thanks so much for the, the extra chat here, and we'll have your one piece of advice on the way. But first, let's check in with our BDO specialist. Pierre Taifer is partner in national sustainability and ESG leader at BDO Canada. Pierre, welcome to the program. Thanks, Dan. And Mike, when we talk about coffee, obviously the product is so popular, uh, so widespread, the sourcing is so complicated. There have always been questions about the sourcing and, and ethical issues to navigate. Yeah, look, let's be honest. I mean, the sourcing in, in, in many industries is has been questionable for quite some time. This is not a new topic. I think part of the evolution of the discussion here is how much are consumers really willing to pay to move into that uh, into that direction. I mean, at this point, we recognize it existed. Uh, I think Pierre, uh, you know, maybe that's something you want to touch on. Is what what do you think the market's looking at? It's all nice and dandy to say ESG is great, but when you right. got to make the consumer pay for it, what's their what's their position? In general, what so so I've been in the the ESG space for about fifteen years now, and have seen with regard specifically to the coffee industry and supply chain being a significant issue from a social perspective, child labor, forced labor. And to answer your question in terms of, is the consumer willing to pay a higher price for a product that is cultivated and uh, um, amassed in a responsible fashion, it's uncertain. So there are studies that demonstrate that yes, a consumer is willing to pay more for a responsible product, but overall, we don't see that um, in, in all of uh, in, in all industries. Do you think that the the economy plays a factor in uh, you know whether they're willing to pay for it or not? I mean, if you're going into tough times and everybody's down, you know, they're going to pay more for coffee. Probably not, I guess. Right. Well, I would think I, I think you're right in a tougher time, and specifically now with the cost of groceries. When I go shopping significant increase over the last couple of years in terms of what my shopping cart costs. And so looking at whether a product is responsible or not, I think overall may be less of a priority for certain consumers. It, it is going to be important for those that are, that for them, ESG and specifically social remains a priority to buy responsible products. But I would think that the mass of consumers looking at what it currently costs them are less focused on that aspect. So do you feel, I mean, you used the term prioritization a minute ago. You know, if I look at that from a coffee industry perspective, I mean, do you feel that, I mean, ESG uh, and, and fair trade and all of this is not new within the coffee industry. Um, do you find that there are any new priorities within the coffee industry at this point? Are, are, are they still focused on uh, the fair trade and everything? Or is there anything else that's really jumping out to you in, in, in the world we're living in? So in terms of the coffee industry and specific to supply chain, I certifications have been common practice within that industry for a number of years now. So I think it it has become to a certain extent a license to to do business within the industry. 
And what we're seeing over the last three to four years, I would say, is also a focus on greenhouse gas emissions. And so not only where are you sourcing from and how is that product being farmed and uh, how is that how is it being collected it's also looking at okay that coffee comes from south america it needs to be transported to canada or it comes from africa greenhouse gas emissions are also part of looking at okay do i buy locally how do i buy and what do i sell and GHG, greenhouse gas emissions, and the objective of decreasing our carbon emissions in Canada is a new issue that's being dealt with by the coffee industry. So really, it's the whole footprint discussion when you uh, when you move into that side. And uh, I guess we're going to have to uh, uh, question whether global warming is going to continue to make it warm enough here for us to grow coffee. Because if we want to get away from some of that sourcing, maybe there will be some positivity from uh, from global warming. We'll be able to produce our own coffee. Right. Potentially. We'll see. Pierre Taifel, Partner and National Sustainability and ESG Leader at BDO Canada. Thanks for joining us, Pierre. Thank you. And as we come to the end of our show, we turn to our guest, Stefan Curry of Union Coffee, and ask him for his one piece of advice for inspiring entrepreneurs, Stefan. My one piece of, of advice, and I'll break it down into three little sections, is number one, have a plan, stay the course, stay true to yourself. My second little piece of advice is have a mentor, or a good support system that will give you feedback. Don't be afraid to ask questions. Don't be afraid to get feedback, whether it's positive or negative. It's very important because different people have different ideas and it might help you see another light. And my third little piece of advice would be stay disciplined. Uh, consistency is key to every business. So stay the course. If do what you feel is best, Obviously, you have, might have to change along the way a little bit, but if you stay true to yourself, you will be rewarded. Mike, interesting uh, story here. Three generations, four if you're including the previous owner, and just really a solid brand, Someone, uh, a company that's really established itself uh, over a very long period of time in Montreal to the point where you know you walk into an office and some people say, hey, you know, we got Union Coffee for you. That's that, that kind of brand equity for a wholesaler is pretty special. Most definitely, you can you know you can see the impact. You can see uh, you know the the representation uh, with within the city, and I love the Stefan's uh, second uh, piece of advice when you're talking about you know ask for help, listen, talk. I mean, so too many entrepreneurs and too many people have this arrogance to think that they know it best. Uh, and there's nothing better than to try and learn on somebody else's dime. Take it, take advantage of other people's mistakes. Take advantage of the things people have done well. Figure out what works for you and what doesn't. But there's nothing more than having a, nothing better than to have more information on on how to succeed and less. Stefan, thanks so much for stopping by. Thank you for having me. A reminder: you can subscribe to Inspiring Entrepreneurs Montreal as a podcast on iHeartRadio, Spotify, Apple, or your favorite platform. And you can log on to the website inspiringentrepreneursmtl.com for hundreds of local entrepreneur profiles. See you next week. of TNKR.